Welcome to Play the Ink. I'm your host, Zach Hale. Today we have a slightly different format on Play the Ink. On the last episode, we had pianist Ting Luo and composer Gene Ahn. While speaking with him, I realized that Gene Ahn had studied with Edmund Campion, who is a professor of music composition and director at the Center for New Music and Audio Technologies, known as CINMAT, at the University of California, Berkeley. In February 2016, while I was in Montreal, Edmund Campion gave a distinguished lecture at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Music, Media, and Technology, better known as Kermit, which I was a member of at the time. The day after his talk, myself and two other colleagues, composer-percussionist Preston Beebe and music technologist-guitarist Ian Hatwick, sat down to talk with Edmund for our website, computermusicdesign.com. This interview, unfortunately, was never released, but stayed on my personal computer for the last six years. And after speaking with Gene, it made me realize that we should release this interview. So today's episode is the release of that interview with Edmund Campion on February 26th, 2016 at Kermit. I also encourage everyone as well after the broadcast to watch his Kermit Distinguished Lecture on YouTube, which we will include in this episode's notes since we reference bits of it throughout the episode. So enjoy our conversation now with Edmund Campion in 2016. So we were just picking some things, I guess, that we noticed out of your talk and then out of some interviews we, we read with you. And so I'm really interested in, because I did some composition as well, mm-hmm. but you said you came from like a serial background and then you use, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, what I'm saying, but you said there is like this this floor, right? This, this structural thing that's underneath that's not always apparent on the surface of the music, right? The sound maybe is like the surface. And I'm, I'm just really interested if you could talk about that, like having these layers of like the structure underneath that maybe you use to get the piece happening and have the structure, but not that you want people to recognize it all the time. Yeah, that's right. And using patchwork for that. Well, what I was trying to get at is that uh, noise or frequency space when I was in my teens was was really part of the culture of, of sound. I mean, the new synthesizers and all these things. And so that was normal. But then when I went to be formally educated, you know, got to college, everything was about the note. Everything was about uh, the uh, the symbolic and uh, and how to control the symbolic. And 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 so suddenly I was in this uh, space in which these two worlds uh, weren't really compatible, the idea of a of a note and a noise. And so that's when uh, you know you have uh, a history of electroacoustic music, which seems to exist independently of other music traditions, or seems to well on one hand actually wants to distance itself. And, uh, and on the other hand, from both sides, I don't, someone might say, I don't do electronic music. I don't do that. You know, I do, mu- I do music or I do this. And, uh, and so, the, so there's a, you know, was my condition, so to speak, of these two worlds. Because the more I got to, into higher education at that time, the more formal the approach to uh, pitch language, you know, it became. And, and even to a point of an ex- sort of extreme, sort of ridiculous set of, of terms for what we, what we called music composition. And they were always at odds. At the same time, there's a third stream in my life which was about improvisation. And I was an improviser. And, uh, and so you weren't supposed to bring that to your academic uh, Space. It just was not discussed, and it wasn't allowed. Uh, it wasn't to be concerned. So when you lived in New York at that time, you'd go downtown and and you know like participate in gallery life or uh, impro- improvising, and then come uptown and be this sort of serial, um, you know, paper-driven, uh, score-driven uh, composer. And so the short part of the story is that that problem for me. Has always is is really what drives most of of my interest in music now, and so trying to bind and uh, see and understand frequency space as both a space that is symbolic and one that is uh, uh, analytical or or frequency based. 
so noise and notes and all these things that uh, I showed the Dennis Smalley uh, sort of uh, spectromorphology uh, uh, note to noise continuum. That's that's pretty much describes it, and and I believe in terms of audibility, uh, you know, noise has been lurking. I say in the in the space of music all along, and so the uh, the the question is where is it, and and where it is is in the lower uh, you know it's at it's in the lower amplitudes. It's in the the, the it. It exists down at a very low level, right? And so it's masked most of the time with uh, traditional Western instruments, right? Who that go a long way to 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 ensure that that noise is under control, right? Mm-hmm. So they, you know, and also in the performance practice, right? So if someone practices for years with their bow to make sure that when the bow starts, it doesn't go, right? <laughs> but now we're living in a time where everybody's sort of like really interested in the, right. the, the and not the uh, <laughs> part of it, right? right? They want so they go in, they're going into the noise floor, and they're really looking at the instrument as as a potentiality, you know, all of its potentiality for noise. But as those of us who are working in new instrument design or whatever know, those instruments really are made to be harmonic things, and they really are designed to do a certain kind of sound and you can subvert that only so far you know and so wouldn't it be nice if we had instruments that you know that really were about the other thing mm-hmm. so it just brings to mind like the futurist of Russolo I mean exactly. does he Im- influence you at all I mean that, that's just the first person that comes to mind when you're talking about noise as being the yeah well I think it, I think in the, the Russolo thing is that's a little more you know it's almost a political uh, social uh, stance about uh, you know uh, the moment he was living you know in that manifesto and all that stuff about and so that uh, it's interesting to me but it's very far for, very far from me as I said I'm a realist and really very practical uh, I actually I, I love the noise space and like uh, and I see it as a, as a rich compositional uh, part of space I also love the frequency space I also love the idea that uh, we can abstract sonic events into symbols and manipulate them as symbols only. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are, to me, are, are really uh, viable uh, as musical. Like, you know, it's not music; it's musical. So what I'm always interested in uh, is uh, what is musical in this, and uh, what. You know, so I'm more Verezian in the sense that uh, I, I'm just drawn to the thing that I don't see present. Like, what's you know, I'm always asking myself, well, what's missing in this picture, uh, and uh, and so I'm always saying, well, that's where I would like to be. You know, I'm uh, I think it's a function of living enough in the uh, decades to see that music does transform, that it does change, you know? And uh, according to the old adage, you know, it, uh, uh, it doesn't change as fast as you think it should, and then when it does change, it's really faster than you, <laughs> you would have imagined, like that kind of political statement. But uh, that's true, and, but at the same time, <clears throat> it's up to people to locate, uh, you know, spaces of action and if if you think that it's all used up or it's all been covered and there's uh, that's just not true it will change and that's why i, I brought up uh, the issue of uh, well scott joplin and the maple leaf rag you know all the way up to charlie parker and cherokee within the course of 40 years or even the end of Bach's life uh 1750 to the end of Mozart's life, what, 1792 or whatever. You know, you're talking about a uh, tremendous musical shift in, in a very small period of time. So it is, it'll, it'll always be that way, so different things. So, and, and we talked with Ian about, uh, you know, just the notion of the, the borderlines of music, right? That's, the pr- that's really probably a more interesting discussion. Like, yeah. maybe this thing we call music is just, about done. <laughs> so. 
Hi there again. Just a brief note. The next person you're going to hear asking a question is Ian Hatwick. So I'm curious. You mentioned briefly in their uh, politics yeah. and the idea that music can change. And you talked also in your lecture about this idea that it's a we mm-hmm. who are creating music. It's yeah. not a me or I'm changing music. Yeah. But I would want to ask you how you view your legacy or maybe your how are you trying to help music evolve and how do you how do you see your place in that um well i think of um like all artists you're involved in uh, it's a personal and it's a transpersonal so it's a private and a and a public activity and uh this is a uh, something that live you live with when you if you keep going with it for because um you have to have a public face, otherwise you won't <laughs> you won't have you won't be able to do it. And and for music, I, I've said it. My brother's a poet, and I've said it to him, and he says, "No, it's just absolutely not true." And what I've said to him is, "said Well, I think that you actually can exist without this community of uh, people around you." I said, "In music, it's impossible to exist without others." It is a uh, an exchange of community and the performances and the public and all that thing. It's that's not uh, something that is uh, tangential or it's, it's something that's essential to the process in some ways. So so for the musician composer, this personal transpersonal um, interaction is like the main thing, right? And so a lot of uh, not just me, but many, many composers have trouble with this. Either they're too public and they have no private <laughs> uh, agenda, right? And, uh, because they're, they're, they may be very successful, whatever that means. As my wife says, successful within a circle of a very small circle. <laughs> so, no, very famous within a very small circle of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, so, so this, um, uh, on the other end, uh, you can get very personal, you know, and basically just not communicate. Okay, so for me, um, the the trick has been, you know, I want you to know what I've been doing. Okay, because I actually it's twenty five years I've been at it, and it's been a public thing, and uh, I. But at the same time, I'm I'm really shy and. Uh, I'm really internal, and I think a, I, this is shared by a lot of other composers that I know, and it's really hard for us to speak up and say, this is what I've been doing, actually. And uh, and so there's a kind of embarrassment quota to that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I've just uh, learned over the years that I have to go ahead and go ahead and stick my neck out so people can cut it off, and because it doesn't actually uh, hurt me. And I, and so I, I feel like I'm I'm giving I, I'm serving a certain role there, and that role basically is to raise a flag that that uh, there are different ways to do this business. Uh, there are different ways to uh, project oneself that you don't have to conform to one uh, current uh, image of what uh, it is to be contemporary or what it is to do new things or what it is to um, be the best composer in the world or what it, all these things. And, uh, and so, yes, uh, that doesn't mean that, that uh, there aren't uh, pathways that can be filled by certain kinds of composers, right? It's not, I, I'm not railing against the current status quo. I, I love uh, many, many, uh, Composers of the music of many, many composers that are working right now, that work within a fairly, fairly narrow uh, idea of what what music is. All I'm saying is that well, wait a minute. Can we at least acknowledge that the the landscape is 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 much broader, and we don't need to uh, close these barriers to um, to exchanges. And so for me, that's been in the collaborative. Uh, that's been discovering how the other arts view music, which of course is oftentimes viewed as a kind of uh, backwater, uh, lost mm-hmm. uh, tradition that uh, that they don't quite get, you know. 
And then we view oftentimes art uh, making as sort of like, well, you're just ill-informed. You don't know anything. Uh, you're you're sort of like you're surfing on the on the current moment of culture in a way that uh, you know has no depth. Uh, that sort of thing. That sort of argument. Yeah. The next person you'll hear ask a question is Preston Beebe. I was just curious, like with you know the current state of the technology with technology these days, how over these you know these past uh, years, these past decades, like electronic music and technology has developed so advanced. And um, how music also is moving really, really fast. You know, I just w- was wondering your, what you thought about um, that and um, well, how you approach it. Yeah, I think uh, you know, uh, I always liked what uh, Zinakis had to say. There's a lot of really nice interviews with Zinakis, and mm-hmm. he said, "I have a small mind," and I, 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 he said this many times. He'll just keep repeating, "I have a small." Mind. So what is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is that you you can't uh, do everything you'd like to do, right? You really do have to make some decisions about, uh, you know, how you use it or what you're going to do with it, right? And uh, Ian and I, again, we, we mentioned this yesterday a little bit, which was the idea of, uh, you know, I'll leave it to you to go away and do these all these things that you're doing it, mm-hmm. and those are wonderful activities. I, I have to, in my small mind, stay uh, where I am because I think that's the place that I live. That's the place that I've I've explored over the years. And so, um, we all think that we live in a special moment, right? There's no. That's just part of being human. I think we think, oh, this is this unique. I don't think anyone has ever. I mean, Einstein, you know, whatever, must have lived, felt, you know that this is a special moment, you know. Or if you were right in the middle of the Second World War, it was like there's never going to be another moment like this in history, or for the Western world anyway. But the um, uh, this, I kind of think it is. I think this transition to an information-based world, uh, being a pre-Internet person, uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And the amount of, of information available is also a kind of numbing feature of our lives. And uh, so the, the world just was not as, as um, opa- uh, uh, transparent. Uh, we really can see what's going on every day all over this globe in all these different ways, not only with scientific data, but just like we can actually just look at the cameras. We see more than the than the government security agencies of the 60s saw of the world. I mean, we can look at it right now. We can zoom into Tehran. We can go down on the street. Uh, I don't, you know, the question is why, you know, what, what does it all mean? Well, we're being bombarded. So, so uh, for people of my generation, what it's really doing is actually unplugging. It's causing them to unplug uh, pretty vigorously because they, they, they can't adapt to that uh, to those changes, you know, it's not like uh, a new phone arrived, you know, it's everything. It, 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 and and so the the generations that are growing up, your generations that are growing up in that space, you know, you you know, I I, I can't speak for you. I don't know who you are, and all I can do is try to not be unplugged from it and try to keep communicating. Because what I find in the arts is that the older people who do not interact with young artists are, are the finished art. They're just not functioning anymore. So that's uh, this issue of, of, again, facing embarrassment of the things that I don't know or can't do and just sitting in there and saying, well, I have to bring to you what I do know. And I and I and and so it's that experience thing. It's that mentorship thing. And um, so, uh, in terms of you mentioned something about legacy, I think everything right now is going to be swept away. We're we're going to be living in a kind of uh, uh, information whole uh, blank. Uh, if there is a history to us in in the future, there's going to be this little. Like there's a historians will come to this period and say, well, there's just not, you know, it's really hard to figure out exactly what what 
you know, people had because, for example, so-called my music, again, uh, none of that stuff works. It doesn't work. Uh, you know, talking about the things with technology and all this stuff. Uh, if you let it go for six months, it's out of. Uh, it's it's already down the tube, you know. So 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 now we have uh, some people trying to deal with that, or trying to instead of writing max patches or whatever, you write uh, schema, you know, schematics, so that someone in the future might want to. So it, trying to deal with the issue of repertoire, and um, so music has always been based in repertoire, as far as I know, you know, Western music, but our music that we're doing today with technologies. It's very difficult for it to be based in repertoire because it's a, it's a um, it's a slippery thing, you know. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. Like how you know when designing patches for for, the, for our compositions, you know, it's interesting to think about will this survive? You know, like with all these operating systems changing and oh, the patch worked in this OS, but now we're in this OS. Oh, my computer just died, so now I'm forced to upgrade. They won't survive. Yeah, and there's no. That's <laughs> but the the uh, and that's uh, you know in terms of if someone's really worried, that's that personal transpersonal discussion. If if I were really worried about so-called like how I might be viewed or legacy, uh, I I would just say I've, I've blown it, and uh, because none of this stuff uh, is really. Um, uh, it's you know it, it, it's liquid it's just gone <laughs> but some people are trying to change that and uh, it really is in the we you know so if I'm working with a, a researcher who's really dealing with trying to form like you said good practice or agile programming in Max or whatever it is really trying to create some practices which uh, can lead to real continuity across the thing. Instead of getting away from this personal environment, you know, this is my thing, and, 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 and my um, friend and colleague David Wessel, who passed away 15 months ago, is really one of the pioneers of all this. He lived in such an environment, too. He, you know, we talked about it, he had a, a comp you know, several computers, and so when he wanted to work in a piece that, you know, some area that he, he had to go back to, you know, the 2010 computer or the 2000 computer and, and so, and, and use that and OS 9 even or whatever it was because the driver, none, you know, all of the associated dependency technologies just don't, were no longer viable. So to try to port all that over is like a whole life in itself. So, so do you think that uh, pieces should be written on a hardware for a specific hardware that you know you send the piece for example uh, with that hardware yeah so um, again that's a fairly traditional view of music right the the idea that you you I give the materials to you the performer I don't know you and th through those schematics you're able to uh, go and do the do the work and so that works quite well with that. Let's forget the technology, and let's say uh, the new music concert we heard last night, or if you heard that last night over here at uh, McGill. Um, you know, there's an ensemble. The musicians are trained. They get the score. There's probably a lot of it in the score, a lot of notational problems that they don't understand, but they make some decisions and pretty much are able to realize the work. Add in some piece of technology, and, and underneath that piece of technology is a whole uh, a technical uh, web of stuff that has to go with it. So one of the pieces I heard last night, had they, they had to have 60 microphones on the stage. Now where, you know, where is that going to come from in any kind of reasonable communication space, right? So no ensemble is going to be able to do that again. Uh, that's just not possible. So that's, those are just very, very practical aspects of technology, not even talking about the platforms or the, or the programming and that, that sort of thing. So yes, uh, if you accept a sort of this traditional space, then you're going to have to narrow uh, what you're giving. And I think the best uh, example I know of this is Kayasariaho, who uh, the, you take a piece like Noah Noah, which is a very well-known piece for flute and max patch, 
and it involves some real-time processing, which is like basically um, uh, ex- uh, infinite reverb and, uh, and a, you know, off of a, of a microphone capture. And so the, and then it has the pedal, right? So it's sort of a little paradigm, right, that we lived with for about uh, 12 years where it's a pedal piece with a max patch and a live performer, and the live performer does the, 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 the technology. Okay, so that piece is performed uh, at least 150 times a year right now. Uh, according to Jean-Baptiste Berriere, it's done every day somewhere. And so uh, sh- that paradigm shows that within that little, in, with that kind of narrowing of, of, of scope, uh, you can have repertoire, right? And so y- as long as uh, Jean-Baptiste Barriere makes sure that the max patch is concurrent with the current uh, systems and all that, anybody can get it, they can get the sheet music, and they can play the piece. But what Kaya reports is that when she wrote the piece, she was really not thinking that way. She was really working uh, in a kind of uh, IRCAM, you know, IRCAM view, which was, you know, like having a lot of, of, of uh, different uh, input from a lot of different people and having a huge production facility, right? So the, she, the kind of sounds that she imagined coming from this flute, the flautist on Noah Noah and the voices and all this, you, you have to think of the espace projection and, and the ear cam and the multi-channel sound. That's, what, that's, what, that's what the way the piece was conceived. And so she says now she goes and she sees people taking the piece and playing it like it's, uh, you know, the Furelis or something. And, and, and it, <laughs> it, you know, she's, it, again, transpersonal, personal. You know, she has to live with that and thank everybody for, <laughs> for playing the music. But there's a disconnect between what she had, uh, if I have it correct, if I'm speak, I don't mean to speak for her, but this is what I, in conversation. And, and so in the case of my own works, I try to do the same thing, uh, except that try to put it into a package where the, the Max Pesh is a standalone application. It loads everything it needs. It comes with an ability to add a microphone. It comes with its own reverb and effects uh, processing. And it's very uh, uh, transparent and easy to use. It, it's just robust. It doesn't uh, cause it, you know, you just, pl- it's plug and play. And so that way the pieces are played. But in my case, they're most of the pieces that I wrote in the 90s. They're pieces that I have almost no interest in personally anymore. And so I've become sort of the caretaker of a couple of older pieces. Uh, So that's another issue, you know. So again, in the public-private way that, you know, I have to sort of either be saddled with something that I did in the past and have to help people. That's the one they want to do, you know, because it's easy and it works and it had, uh, you know, so. I, I found myself thinking during this whole discussion that we're artists most of the time when you're working, you're not necessarily thinking about what's going to happen down the road with this. And you're not thinking about posterity or, or you know, you're thinking about this is a problem I'm interested in in the moment. These are the tools I need to realize this problem. And that this was true, you know, probably is true of every, every artist's practice. And it probably was true of composers in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. So the idea that we have this written notation, which to us looking back feels like uh, a legacy that they've gave to us was really a derivative of their daily practice. Absolutely. So for us as computer musicians, our daily practice is working with Max patches, and we don't know how those are going to be viewed in the future, whether they're even going to be able to be accessed. Uh, but we just, you know, we don't know. Yes, yeah, so, uh, as I said, the the change is a lot slower than you would imagine it should be, right? And that's because we're a small community, actually, mm-hmm. and. Uh, there still are a lot of people that play violins out there mm-hmm. uh, in the world, and and they still do it in a pretty traditional way, and uh, and so those are larger communities, and those those music, those scores that circulate and are played, and you know they serve larger communal social functions that we're not necessarily doing. We have more micro communities around this stuff, and then the um, I would say that you know individually, privately, yes, you you're you're working in Max or, or some environment and you're programming daily and you're, in your case, 
uh, working with hardware and um, uh, maybe even building hardware uh, and that sort of thing, which is a very broad set of activities. I, I, I would say the main activity of today, and I, I just always say this, which is, is who are you collaborating with? And, and um, because I can't do, I, I've reached my limit in terms of my ability to do technology. The, all I can offer to a, a developer or a, a researcher is that I'm somebody who um, has the experience and, and enough knowledge of technology to actually participate with you. And so I don't have any illusions about what technology might do to to what to the situation. I'm really like uh, I understand the limits of what's going on, and I understand that uh, a researcher might really be interested in something very abstractly related to communication between machinery, or and that that that's a really fascinating problem. And so the question in collaboration is how do we uh, how do we share and come up with something, right? How does that person make progress and how do I make progress in terms of this issue of, well, I have a deadline. I have uh, I have an ensemble that I, I'm going to sit down with in, in a month and we're going to actually do this thing, right? And so um, the culture of like, uh, well, what the IRCAM called the musical assistant. I guess it's called a realisateur now or something. Informatic musical. Informatic yeah. musical and um, the 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 issue of accreditation. Like who does the work? You know who 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 gets credit for what? And 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 so so these old cultures collide and usually say, well, it's the composer and and then. It's Ed Campion did this, and then suddenly the, my collaborators called me up and said, "You know why? You know you, you've locked me out of the project. How, how could you do that?" I said, "I didn't do that. You know, I, I I made every effort. I have to go back and show the emails. This is what we do, and this is how we do it. And they still put you know it in the old traditional uh, accreditations. They just don't have a model for like concerts for how to." Credit people who uh, are major contributors to a, to a project. So I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so uh, it, but it has been a learning process to to figure out, you know, where do you credit? Because the the if you just take the Sinmat uh, spectral objects, we call them like. Uh, sinusoids or resonator tilde, and then you start mining it for the kind of of roots, you know, the Racine, the like, who's responsible for this thing? Then you know, it it just it just becomes this endless thread of people that you can't you know you can't even detangle it anymore because you realize oh well this all, this goes all the way back to uh, like the first uh, you know experiments in uh, at IRCAM about you know issues of uh, Resonance and yeah, so it's hard to hard to to collaborate, hard to mm-hmm. credit collaboration, hard to recognize that this uh, old image of the composer as being the chief uh, mm-hmm. visible is is just totally dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and uh, I was just thinking about you know some of your pieces where you have these open environments for the performer to improvise in part of it and like I know what you know when you improvise like who is who's really uh whose material is that you know and you're you know uh, you you lay down these parameters and for them to work around and yeah Yeah, they're more like as I call them flight instructions right and so um the the piece you know that I would say it represents mostly that is the piece. It's called Korai. It's it means choral, sea choral, and it's for a um, saxophone and interactive uh, uh, max patch. And inside the max patch, it's fiddle tilde is the analysis engine. So there's Miller Puckett, and then it's a wrapper around that um, uh, fiddle tilde, and from that. It, it jumps to a bunch of pattern matching uh, spaces, which were not mine. They they were uh, I, I I defined them, I laid them out. But the engineer and developer was Matthew Wright, 
and then Matt, Matt who's, who's head of technical direction now at, at Karma in Stanford, with Karai, uh, he solves so many problems of um, uh, gain management uh, because if you're going to give an environment to a player and they're going to control everything, right, you don't want to have, there's not going to be a, a Wizard of Oz person back there actually fixing the problems that the player, no, it really is turn it on, it's your environment. There's all of these issues about what they're generating and how it's being added into the space and then how, how the various gains are being handled. And so what kind of control of gain can you give the performer, right? So how closely can their, uh, their own gain envelopes, uh, amplitude envelopes control the space? Well, that's a real serious problem in terms of uh, how to articulate, you know, how to model that. And uh, Matt Wright uh, really uh, solved that for me. And um, so, so there's all just all kinds of little, uh, well, it's a whole list. It's a laundry list of problems. That's what that piece is. And so first, it's the, it's the uh, viability, the, the uh, reliability of, of analysis. Okay, so how much can you count on with with fiddle tilde? How much can you count on with something like the Antiscofo engine or the or Sigmund or whatever? So we're always moving from different, uh, you know, analyzer tilde is another. Um, but with fiddle, there's a pretty large degree of error uh, that you're going to have to live with. It's not just a a beautifully cooked pitch world, right? Mm-hmm. No, it, it's a bunch of data that you've got to. Uh, average, you've got to look at it and figure out, you know, if you're going to believe it or not, or and that sort of thing. And for the composer, you're going to have to figure out, um, you know, what's your margin of error in terms of what you're going to let happen. So I would say that, as it is with a lot of the works that I've done, uh, it's I only just took the first step, you know, because I could have spent my whole life doing Karai-like work. And, and by now, if I did that, you would know me primarily as someone who did these environments, and they would be really, really kind of hot, you know. And, but I've never been uh, that kind of person, because what I do is I, I, I change. I want to I move. I don't, I, I, even though I love doing that work, I don't want to be so narrow in my uh, approach. I wanted to see what was possible by doing it. And also, I wanted—I had some specific uh, performance uh, things in mind. For example, with Karai, it was part of a ballet originally that was commissioned by Irkam, and that ballet uh, had the musician on the stage with the dancers. So it was a wireless microphone, and the dancers don't think of a musical structure the way musicians do. So they had no score, and I didn't want them counting really precise things. And so the idea was to give them an environment to allow the saxophonist to project a kind of architectural sound space that they danced in. And um, so that was the origins of it. It was very practical uh, in, its, in its origin. What it ended up being, as I said, was a, a very sophisticated sort of gain control management system, a fairly uh, robust analysis system, which was fiddle-based, and then a number of pattern matching groups of, of, of patterns. And so it was something, so we, what we were doing is saying, well, uh, you know, if there's silence, how much silence? If it's in this register, what register? If it's at this level in amplitude, how, you know, uh, then, then you're good to go. And, and, and so that would be, a, that would create a new uh, strike of something, right? So the player then becomes someone who negotiates all of these different uh, patterns, and this this reflects right back on the on the player as well because it's they don't get to be themselves anymore. They realize that they are uh, they are a controller, and uh, and so they have to, they have to play accordingly, and this changes the way they play, not just what they play, but how they play, and so they can make fiddle work a lot better if they play a certain way, right? And uh, so um, this, this is an interesting part of the work that I've done over the years, too, is it, it's recognizing how much, you, um, how much you alter, maybe disturb uh, performance practice. And then you have to go back and think about how your work 
with technology, you know, uh, might be better served in another way. Like, for example, my history with click tracks. I don't, I really am not trying to promote click tracks. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just don't have another way to do what I've been doing. <laughs> and so it's pretty, uh, I don't like putting those on musicians' heads. And, <laughs> yeah. But I think we're close to being, to, to having a way to, to not need click tracks. Yeah. There's also these vibrotechnical. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. The the uh, there's a there's a number of things coming now which uh, could could solve that problem, but right. it does require the research, the funding, the exactly. Uh, and 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 for example, like wireless, uh, if you're going to have dynamic tempo maps between many musicians that are spread out over space, and you want to and you want to get them all in some sort of coordinated clocks through through network systems, well, there you go. You know, you, I think you're probably dealing with that. <laughs> There's uh, at least several projects in our lab that are dealing with exactly that. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, there's a commercial company just released uh, Tactile Metronome Soundbrenner. Oh. And uh, one of the people involved in the development of that was from our lab as well. So it's mm-hmm. very near and dear to our interests. Oh, I'm going to ask you about that more because yeah. I, I want to. Uh, it's mobile and you can use like a mobile app. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> promote the synchro- it now, but, but yeah. you you can actually sync up or yeah. Uh, but the you know the the those networks are just so re- unreliable and yeah. Um, the uh, I've I, so many times I've thought okay, well we're just gonna use the router, and I've ended up stringing a long Ethernet cable because it's just like you walk into a hall and everybody's cell phone shows up and then everything goes yeah. timing goes to hell crazy yeah. and yeah, really. <laughs> so. I always uh, so that robust reliability issue. That's uh, yeah. yeah. Perry Cook in his uh, paper, and he was talking about uh, principles of instrument design. One of the things he said is, I always paraphrase this: the only thing worse than wires is wireless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but maybe that's only temporary. Maybe that's going to be uh, uh, solved. Uh, uh, well, I've definitely found as an instrument designer and a hardware developer. At this point in history, your wireless is, is the way to go, but it's a challenge. It still is not a solved challenge. It's something that really requires attention and, and focus to, to meet those challenges that it presents, but it's the way of the future. It's, mm-hmm. it's what we expect, and it offers so many possibilities, right. which are really wonderful. So you really do want to embrace those. I mean, think about cell phones. I'm sure, you know, in the 60s or 70s, you talk about cell phones. Well, that was only like, oh, that was really unreliable technology. I mean, and now everybody has that's it. Right. So it yeah. just, it's time with anything. You know, yeah. it cooks and figures itself out. Yeah. It, that's right. It will happen. You know, in the 60s, the, the, the stopwatch was a very, very functional musical instrument. And it, was, it worked pretty good. And so today it doesn't, you know, to me, that's fine. If we all have to sit you know, the four of us get together with our stopwatches and say three, two, one, boom, and then walk to our corners. We're going to be pretty much synced in terms of human time needs, and uh, and so the question comes about the scale. Like, at what scale of precision are you talking about here? And uh, so I've been interested. That that's what you know. I, I've been interested as a composer in those areas of the of the spectrum of of something like timing, uh, you know, like uh, that that's just not occupied by other composers, you know. So in this case, let's say super, pre- like what is precision in timing, right, in terms of human timing? And what difference does it make? You know, like what are we, what are we trying to do if we try to get four people to actually do something simultaneously? Mm-hmm. And we know that it's not simultaneous at a certain scale, but maybe at a perceptual scale, it's good enough, right? So music is full of the good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and in fact, that's, that's called expression, <laughs> you know, temporal uh, uh, notions of, of clock precision are, are, are pretty, uh, they're germane to our time in some way because we're, we're watching clocks everywhere and their precision. But uh, I'm not sure that, I don't know what their ultimate musicality is. So I think that's an interesting thing. That's where the conceptual, like I'm really interested as a as a composer, in the art in art the art aspect of uh, which is questioning uh, grids and questioning uh, even chaotic spaces or distribution or whatever whatever it is you're doing with with time, um, trying to uh, 
uh, both do it and watch yourself doing it so that you question the that's what I consider to be art making you know we're not naively putting stuff together we're we're actually um, uh, weirdly self-aware but we still make stuff mm. you know so we're both observing and and doing and that's what I call the doing problem right now so so I, I just at end, it was about when we were talking about I guess air in the, the interactive environment and you said you were creating because I worked with a Analyzer this summer mm -hmm. on some things and I, what I found was interesting is like maybe if you compose the piece knowing that there might be air like a way to maybe do so like if this doesn't work then repeat this until it does work mm -hmm. or I mean, do you think that that's something that maybe we could do as composers, or is well, that? Well, that's what I did do. That's what Karai is, and mm -hmm. so Karai. Uh, the the only way you can play that piece badly is if you think I'm going to do this and you're going to do that in response. No, you you're going to do. You have a set of patterns that the computer understands or doesn't, so it may be hard of hearing. And also, they're all simultaneous, so they're all overlapping systems. And so you may be uh, making something happen that you're not conscious of, like because you've actually satisfied some other pattern that you weren't intending, so to speak, so intention of the player. The player has to let go of intention, and they have to fly. And flying means that they do all of it at once. And when they do that, what, what I found in the pieces, uh, I don't know, at least done with uh, 15 different saxophonists that are all either uh, jazz trained or like free improvisers are totally classical trained. Susan Fancher is totally a, a French style classical uh, saxophonist who took the piece up as well and recorded it. And um, But what... Uh, everybody reports is that they absolutely love doing it that they they get uh, you know it starts talking to them and they start talking to it and then uh, they realize that that it's them you know that they're uh, they're projecting themselves into some larger sphere and that they uh, they don't have full control they don't have intention in that sense but they can like a boat on a on a, a sea, yeah. They they can tack and they can go this way and they can go that way. And uh, if they if they if they rough things up too much, you know, yeah, it might get a little rough out there. But then they can calm it down and start over again. <laughs> so all of those things are based in an error, a, an acceptable window of error. And that's been part of all of my environments that use. Um, um, uh, sort of interactive electronics. Otherwise, it's it, it's it's just too dangerous to try to it, the Boulezian notion of perfection of score perfection following and all that kind of stuff. I think that might just be uh, uh, you know that's an aesthetic choice to to some degree. And uh, again, about exercising intention and control uh, with the electronics, which is a good goal too, I suppose. And uh, but the uh, flexibility. Uh, the ability to recover. I mean, all of us who, you as a performer, know that, you know, you don't walk on the stage and do 100%. You're, you're in the process of recovery all the time. <laughs> you got to get really good at that, you know. It's like, you know. And I've played pieces with score following where it doesn't follow me, and then you're exactly. kind of like, oh, just well, the pedal. That's, <laughs> right, that's right. Well, we did uh, Antam Deux uh, with Antiscofo a few years ago. And I don't, I'm not disparaging Anascofa, which I really respect and think is an incredible thing in a lot of ways. But we that we we had to do that. We had to sit back at the computer and, and start launching. Uh, Space bar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because we we couldn't get it to, uh, you know, follow correctly. So. Yeah, I'm I, I'm really interested in things happening in real time. You know, in allowing. You know, if you have different performers to approach the piece, how they can have their input, you know, instead of having pre-recorded sound files mm -hmm. of some other performer, and then they have to match that, it, and it it just 
I feel like uh, when when things are lo- in real time and live, like it really allows the performer to bring it to their level. It's like um, like how someone would interpret a, a box and not a, you know, where there's no dynamics written, you know. So how would they, you know, interpret that the dynamics and bring it to to their level and and having their own input and I don't know what. Yeah, I agree that um, the search for a real time aesthetic. You know, is is extremely important, and the a mistake that a lot of people make is, is well, I'm going to do this thing in real time, and yet there's no uh, there's no aesthetic underpinning to that relationship of what you mean by uh, why you're doing it that way, and and so you just gave the best one, which is this performer involvement uh, feeling of of owner of of, of authority. To, to to the space that that is something that I think is really a, a good place to start with with real time uh, but uh, what's happened historically is that the real time the advent of real time sort of stole away the this notion of the composer that's doing all this pre-compositional and, and planning and so I think Antem du is a really good example of like something that I wouldn't recommend be real time because uh, it's uh, it's such a composed it's so precisely composed that I would prefer that that a piece like that be a piece for violin and orchestra and just be conducted because it would just be so much more beautiful and, and, and instead of all of this you know complicated uh, technical uh, interaction which I don't think adds up to a real time aesthetic and nothing emerges out of that that. I would say is specifically fascinating about the real-time space. It seems to be, um, it was an older uh, idea, it took a long time to realize, and I don't know that we're going to have a lot of pieces that work that way. Um, does that make sense in terms of a, yeah. um, a um, notion that all of these technologies, and, and certainly, uh, the, of course, real time is not the word we want to use, right? There's no done actions. You know, something's got to happen between it, the space of real time, which is what, you know, it's more like just closer to real time. And, uh, but the, uh, it takes away, you know, it takes away this large scale formal memory thing that's been part of music composition for, for a long time. And so naturally, it, it has, really found a home with improvisers and, uh, you know, environments with uh, uh, performer, people who are both performers, maybe doing their own max environments. I'm thinking of uh, Frank Grotowski, who who has been working over the last few years. He's just an amazing improvising musician, and he's been working in Max and learning how to program and building with Arduino, adding stuff to his instrument. And, you know, to me, this is uh, a real-time aesthetic. You know, he's got some very compelling personal need with his own sense of his own identity as a musician to do this. Um, so I, I had something similar in the 90s when Ircam asked me to do the NatSell project which was, you know, I wanted an environment that was made for my playing, you know, my, 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 myself as a keyboardist. So I'm not a pianist in the sense that I wouldn't play Boulez piano sonata. Uh, I'm a pianist in the sense that I have a lot of improvisational skill, and I use the piano as a composer. So trying to create a, an environment in which I, were, I could explore improvisation and interaction with Max, there was no MSP at the time, uh, the, uh, was really natural for me. And, and so then, the pro- then it became uh, continuity, how to keep it alive. You know? and, and I'm really happy to say that 20 years later, I, I still have the environment. It's modular. I can open it up. I can play it. I can I can um, adapt it to other artistic collaborative spaces, and so it is uh, it is working. So at least from a personal sense, the thing is that, it, that I'm going back to the Frank Gretowski comment. You have to have a real reason you want to be there, and in my case, the improvisation is a wonderful uh, companion with more formal compositional thinking. 
because I like flexibility and I like to to and, and being an improviser keeps me mentally um, it keeps me closer to real time and makes me n not be so detached from musical material when I'm working with it and so um, that 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 really is integrated. The part that's not integrated is when I really get into hard programming problems, and I'm trying to uh, solve things for myself, which were really be better solved by uh, people who are uh, like you, or uh, really have a much higher level um, engagement or interest in 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 let's say quality. Uh, uh, best practice, good, pro solid, rigorous programming skills, and I'm still one of those people that can program, but I, I, it's going to, you know, it's, it's it's somewhat laughable from someone who's really an expert. You know, <laughs> you know, I have a, this sinking feeling that most people who program feel that feel that way about their own code. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's always someone higher than you that can do it better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I've I've run with some pretty high-minded uh, coders, yeah. and so uh, over at Berkeley, there's just you know they they sort of rule computer science so the uh the uh, you know again that's that I, early on i said something about the embarrassment of the public you know and being able to say well okay well i'll walk into your uh your domain and and, and go ahead and show you that i don't know anything but that i've done the best i can with it mm -hmm. and i said well sometime you come over into my field and we'll see how you do you know because <laughs> they don't think they need to do that because why would they want to do you know Wait, why would I want to write music? Exactly. Yeah. That's just. A <laughs> well, they would be too embarrassed. <laughs> so, thinking about the aesthetics of real time, I found myself going back to our earlier discussion about noise mm -hmm. and thinking about. For me, one of the aesthetics of of real time computer systems and interactive computer systems is dealing with the situatedness of music, and again, this is something that somehow formal notation and sort of formal composition attempts to, attempts to minimize in some ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, the ability to interact with the environment, the sp physical, spatial, acoustic environment, the social environment, the ensemble environment, the realities of playing an instrument in which you're really coupled with this very complex system and letting those things be part of the, the focus and the interest of the work. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that really benefits from a real-time uh, absolutely yeah, that's part of it yeah that's that's part of that aesthetic issue absolutely yeah. and um, this is it this brings to mind I've seen Paralunaire a couple times mm -hmm. and I've seen it in a huge hall you know the front orchestra and I've seen it in a coffee shop that was like so small everybody could barely fit in there and I loved the coffee shop and right. if you think when it was written oh it's for like a cabaret setting right yeah so I guess in that way too like you imagine the space and then you have to it's almost like a historical context too maybe sometimes sure mm -hmm. so. yeah absolutely you know the um, uh, that's you know the, the oppressive concert hall it really is it can get uh, it can really be bothersome mm -hmm. but at the same time maybe you know it's not like tear it down it's not really a Marxist uh, argument for the you know the end of the uh, it's not a Stockhausen thing like we will bury you and uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> it didn't happen so the the thing is that it should exist it exists for a good reason it is I think in some ways connected to you know a more religious view of of how we're gonna how we're gonna treat sound in that space right so we're gonna we're gonna treat it with respect we're gonna we're gonna conform. Uh, to the to the space of, uh, of that culture and most people do right when no matter how you feel about it, a piece of music you know you're not really doing the right the classic early 20th century riot thing these <laughs> days right like I'm not sure anybody would be that impressed if a bunch of people stood up and started screaming at the uh, you know disrupted a concert everybody would just say you know first of all why did you you know it wouldn't be controversial and it wouldn't uh, uh, help anything, mm -hmm. right? So the concert hall exists in a beautiful way still. It's a place, it's a site, there's something you can do there. And I think uh, what the McGill New Contemporary Music uh, Ensemble did last night is an example of that, a great use of the concert hall, which is what it's for. Mm -hmm. And But again, the uh, I, I find that a little narrow. Is that the only place that Composers and musicians and uh, should work. No, of course not. And so, 
uh, not just public places, like you said, the coffee shop thing, which gives you a completely different perspective on Pierrot, right? Uh, uh, but also just much more extended situations for um, uh, the kind of knowledge that we bring as uh, composers and musicians, uh, how to translate that into other situations so people get an idea of what it is we're, um, what, what it is we're doing. Uh, the art world, for example, seems to be stuck on John Cage as sort of the end and of, of any notion of what uh, sort of new music or, uh, is. And that's, uh, that's a sort of a function of history in a way, and, but it's sad to me. It's sad because um, we've, we split off. They gave up on systems at a certain point, the way that we, we seem to be a lot, our technology and these kind of things as well. So um, I, I often find myself trying to, uh, trying to reestablish uh, some sense of uh, discourse with people in the arts, as I said. Mm-hmm. 